Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Brett Chisholm. I'm Josh Evans. And on today's episode, I discuss the TV show Atlanta's pants-splittingly good logo type that is cleverly representative of the show itself. And then Josh discusses a pants-splittingly awesome piece of apocalyptic content that inspired a deep-dive rumination on the real-life pandemic that we all lived through. So if you like zombies, experimental films, apocalyptic scenarios, or pants-shittingly scary alarm sounds, then you just might enjoy this obscure and awkwardly titled YouTube video, Zombie Virus EAS Scenario-The Awakening Featuring Harvester. Be aware, if you're easily triggered, we do discuss trigger warnings on this episode. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books, and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett. <laughs> yes. How are you? I'm doing better than your pants, apparently. Uh, oh, yeah. You started telling me a story, and I was like, stop. We got to start recording. People need to hear about this. So continue with this story about your pants. <laughs> I was telling Brett how I had a really stressful day, which I won't bore you guys with those details, but one of the uh, more mirthful bits of stress that I had today was I blew out the ass on my second pair of pants in two days. And they're the same type of pants. There's these pants from The Gap or something. I don't know. But they're really cool. I like them a lot. And I had a blue pair and a camel pair. And the blue pair, the other day, I was like, man, it's really cold in these pants. And I took them off and <laughs> whole butt was ripped out. And so I thought, oh, yeah, it's just like a fluke or something. So uh, today I crouched down and I heard this familiar unzipping sound. <laughs> And I was like, wow, that sounds a lot like what happened the other day. And I looked at the butt of my pants, and it's blown out from the the belt loops all the way to the crotch. And just, <laughs> it's just a total Grand Canyon scenario. So I don't think I'll be buying these types of pants anymore. I get, you got to stop shopping at The Gap. It's in the name. They, they warned you. They'll gap out on you. <laughs> <laughs> well, geez, man. Yeah. I'm uh thanks for sharing your story. Um Nay, no problem, buddy. <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm in New York City and all my pants are intact so far. <laughs> yeah, you're having a better day than I am. Yeah. Congratulations. So. <laughs> Stop bragging, thanks. Brett. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> what are you doing out in New York? Oh, I'm working right now and my hotel is literally um like spitting distance from Times Square. It's right down the street. Oh, so nice. You can spit all, of, all those <laughs> Times Square assholes. <laughs> I can't. You can probably I spit pretty the... far from a high rise. I, absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I saw Spider-Man today. He was uh, um, pretty overweight, had a backpack on. He also had his mask <laughs> up, and he was smoking a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> don't well, remember seeing that superhero lungs and get away with that <laughs> and then i sent you a picture of uh batman standing right next to elmo the head was falling off of elmo so yeah that batman had the largest gauntlet blades <laughs> i've ever seen they're like they're like foot and a half long like the rest of that guy's outfit was completely movie quality and then that i was like what why does he feel the need to add this particular piece of flair he already looks good <laughs> don't need to church it up 
<laughs> I definitely I like the budget style. You know, <laughs> like, like the tourist trap. Um, like movie characters are like for adults at least are way more entertaining than like what you get at Disney. Like Disney, like there's very strict rules. They, you know, they they really are movie quality. Like they, it's like going to like a professional performance when you see like a character at like Disney or Universal Studios. Uh, but no non-regulation a- <laughs> blade gauntlets at Disney. Yeah, no, Times Square. That's a different story. For sure. Uh, no regulatory commission <laughs> exactly. at the Times Square characters. Exactly. It's a, it's a free-for-all, for sure. Oh, man. So, yeah, I wish you'd gotten a picture of this fat Spider-Man. I definitely <laughs> would like to see that. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. I seem to fly in right. out of JFK quite a bit. My uh, guess is he couldn't have gotten too far smoking <laughs> fat Spider-Man, so you should see if you can track him down tomorrow and get me a picture. I could see him swigging through New York and then just uh, like having to stop because he has like a coughing fit from all the like gunk in his lungs. Oh, <laughs> Three packs a day. Yeah. Imagine how far he could spit. Yeah. <laughs> Disgusting. That's gross. Well, before we get right. um, too <laughs> off this. topic, into the off topic, I do want to ask you about your weekend skydiving. You got to tell me about this. This sounds way better oh, than your man. pant-splitting story. Oh, it was pant-splittingly fun. I'll, I'll <laughs> say that. Uh, yeah, I, uh, two weeks ago, I got back from the Echelon event at Skydive of Elsinore. And uh, I just did a uh, Fall Risk podcast about this. So if you want to hear about it more in detail, you should listen to that show in a few weeks when it drops. Uh, but it was a, a 40-way invitational event. Basically, like best skydivers on the planet it was it was so crazy um i saw the roster it was more... it's it was uh you know i'm not as in touch with skydiving as you are but i recognize this, several of the names as like multiple multiple world champions world record holders uh and of course if you're showing up obviously it's the cream of the crop yeah mr skydive that's me <laughs> uh i uh I mean, even more than world records that I have done, I've done two of them. This was like such a more amazing experience because this wasn't like a high stress environment. There was no risk of like being cut from a jump. Like on a world record, if you mess up a jump, they basically just replace you with somebody else that's on the bench. But this was, uh, it was a little bit of an experimentation. Uh, They were trying out new formation techniques, uh, like a new way to build a 40-way base for a world record. So some new uh, construction geometry. They were also, I guess they've been doing this for a while, but this is the first exposure I've had to it. They were doing uh, multi-level, multi-discipline formation sequentials. So they had head up and head down, but also they had different parts of the formation on different levels. So uh, typically like on a skydiving formation on a big way, you know, you'll build it with a base in the center and then everyone builds, depending on what position they're in, they either build lower than the base or higher than the base with the intention of being able to see across the formation at your cross partner, which is like a, per- a person on the other side of the formation that you use as a reference to keep yourself in the, in the right position and on the right level. And in these, uh, in these skydives, we would build a traditional formation like that, but then we would sink the base out like 15, 20 feet below the rest of the skydive. 
And so you get these crazy multiple level formations. Uh, I ended up doing a lot of uh, base flying, which usually I'm on the outside, but um, they were doing uh, head up bases and I had made a request to see if I could do some head up slots because it's a little bit more challenging. And I actually got into those slots, which is really cool. I wasn't expecting that, but I got to be one of these people that, you know, 8,000 feet, we'd sink the base out. So we'd speed up and then we get these uh, crazy pictures where we'd have an eight way head up base, 20 feet below, like a 20 something way head down formation connected by these lines of people with like one arm low, one arm high. So they're flying in a super awkward position and they're bridging the gap between those two levels of formation. So it made some really incredible photos, which I think have been submitted to Parachutist and 90%, like a bunch of skydiving magazines. So it'll be interesting to see if we get any pictures in there. But it was really just, uh, I mean, it was, like I said, not too stressful. I made a couple of mistakes and it's just like, okay, you, you know you, you know what you did, fix this problem and let's get on to the next skydive. And there were a few people that had issues like that, but you know, it was all just like super cash and just everybody just brought their A game, made it happen. If you made a mistake, you just fix it and move on. And it ended up being pretty much like the event that kind of revitalized skydiving for me. Cause I, you know, I have fun skydiving, but it hasn't been like anything crazy the last probably five years. It's been a lot of working with my students, which I really love and coaching, but I haven't been doing a lot of skydiving for myself. And so this really brought that back in the forefront of like, oh yeah, this is why this sport is so incredible. And this is why everyone works so hard to be good at it. So you can do things like this. Well, shout out to uh, Nate Roth as well, because that's when I first saw the pictures and the video from this uh, just on his Instagram feed. Cause he was out there and he, he worked, you know, he goes back with us um, for the old sky venture, Colorado wind tunnel days, but man, he's just an amazing skydiver, amazing photographer and that's when I saw some of the stuff that you were doing, and it's uh, pretty mind-blowing. Um, it's wild for me as like a very casual jumper who basically took 10 years off uh, to see the changes in the sport. Like when I came back to see that people were doing mixed formation skydiving where they were mixing belly flying and free flying on the same jump multiple times on a regular basis, that felt wrong to me. The first MFS jumps that I did, I was like, well, back in my day, like you get yelled at for mixing belly flying. You're grounded flying. for doing this. <laughs> yeah. And then t- the idea of putting multiple groups on multiple levels is also kind of mind blowing because like back in, I, I, I don't want to say back in my day, but I don't know how else to put it. Because back in my day when I was like skydiving a lot, you, the way to get yelled at would be to come into a group of skydivers off level. <laughs> like that was... Totally. A way to, to piss somebody off and, and not have a good day at the drop zone. So uh, it's really cool also to see. vertical separation. Well, we don't talk about that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I only horizontally separate. I've grown up a little uh, bit, Josh. You've learned. <laughs> I mean, to me, too, this this whole off-level formation thing, it, it was incredible, but it seemed so wrong to me in the beginning because I've been trained the same way, you know, and uh, – Shout out to Andy Malchiotti and Matt Fry, the guys that put all this stuff together. Like they're incredible organizers, and they just they just made it all make so much sense. I know a lot of these guys that are at the event have done this stuff before, but for me, this is the first one, so a lot of it was new. 
And uh, I was, I'd only done one skydive this season before I showed up at the event, and I was under the impression like I'm going to be the least current person here. But after the first skydive, I've heard a few people say, whoa, man, that was a crazy way to get current this year. And I thought, <laughs> okay, good. I'm, I'm not the only one that <laughs> doesn't take my currency too seriously. But uh, it didn't really affect the performance of anyone. I mean, I feel like at that level of skydiving, I know for me, I feel like after six months, I can just like whew, just dust it off and like go do, you know, one of the most technical skydives I've ever done because – I mean, that's basically what I've been training to do for 20 years and being constantly in the wind tunnel, you know, like the, the, the main thing with currency at this point for me is making sure them in the right, right place in the canopy pattern and making sure that I understand where all the traffic is, the, the, the canopy, the landing, that's the main thing for currency right now in free fall to me. I basically feel like, okay, this is essentially the wind tunnel. So I was concerned about 40 ways making sure that I didn't get in anyone's way, cut anybody off. But at an event like this, everybody just kind of takes it easy and nobody's trying to show off on landings. Just get the whole group on the ground safely. Yeah. Wow. What a wild experience, man. I, I, I don't expect to ever be skydiving with the world's best, but I would eventually like to uh, be doing like bigger way stuff like that, like a 20 way, 30 way, 40 way like that. It just looks like such an incredible visual and such an amazing experience. So that's super cool. What a what an amazing thing. And uh, you know what they say? Nothing ever went wrong with experimentation. <laughs> and uh, also, <laughs> if your pants don't blow out, you're not wearing them hard enough. <laughs> that old chestnut. Yeah, that's it. Uh, you know that old saying <laughs> from when you were a child. But uh, yeah, check out the Fall Risk podcast in a few weeks if you want to hear like a detailed rundown because that's essentially what that show is all about. Here we just uh, occasionally we uh, glance off of our awesome lives of skydiving and flying planes. But uh, yeah, that show, I, I give a full uh, hour and a half interview about it. Nice. Oh, I can't wait to check that out. Well, Josh, the, uh, besides skydiving, the only other thing we have in common is content. That's true. Yeah, yeah, we're definitely not good <laughs> friends on any deep level. <laughs> well, uh, I've been pretty excited to talk about this juicy little nugget of an article that combines several things we like um, and have discussed previously on the show. So not only is this article itself content, but it is content that appreciates content that I appreciate. So oh, uh, it's like a <laughs> Russian nesting doll of appreciation. <laughs> and it, it also discusses graphic design and the clever use of font and i know you're into uh font and graphic design so um and full disclosure to the audience i did send josh this article to check out before we recorded the show because i really wanted to get his take on it but this article in question it comes from shanae Ezix. no idea how to pronounce this person's name but that's what i'm gonna go with uh it's c-h-i-n-e nailed it, nailed it. So it's titled, Why Atlanta's Logo is Perfect. I found it on a Medium blog called A Conca. And uh, uh, I'm talking about the TV series Atlanta. I know I've talked about this show before. Super unique and captivating. Follows two cousins, Earn and Paperboy, plus their entourage as they navigate the Atlanta rap scene in an effort to improve their lives, the lives of their families. I mean, it's super creative and innovative, hilarious, uh, and it tackles a lot of difficult subjects, race, economic disparity, existentialism, 
something called urban aimlessness, according to, I think, Wikipedia or Google when I was Googling, like, how to describe Atlanta. But I, I binged all the seasons. I loved it. I can't recommend it enough. Very surreal. Anyway, within the first five minutes or so of each episode, the title screen with the word Atlanta would appear. In the first episode, it's very clearly shown over an aerial shot of Atlanta. In later episodes, it's sort of tucked away somewhere or, you know, it's hidden on a gun, on a barbershop poster, like things like that. It definitely made me curious when I started to notice this, but I still didn't really think too much about it until I stumbled across Shanae's article. Shanae, like you, Josh, he's a graphic designer So he's automatically just looking for clues and design elements, and he's trying to figure out uh, the context of the designs or or the design's significance. So the article from Shanae argues that the logo for Atlanta is significant and representing the essence of the show, just the logo. Uh, The logo is composed of a logo type with the word Atlanta rendered in a serif typeface named Cabernet JF. The first and last letters, which are obviously A, have swashes on the end of them that add a sense of flamboyance, while the other characters in the word maintain a serious tone. And this contrast reflects the show's blend of humor and drama. Also in the article, he goes into detail about the swashes that have like a circle at the end that are supposed to represent, he thinks, the peach Um, because peaches have a big association with Atlanta, Georgia. And a logo type, by the way, I just learned this in this article. Uh, It's a word that doubles as a logo. It can also be called a word mark. So an example of this would be like Visa or Google. Uh, They might change the text visually in some way for a logo type. It might be stylistically changed. Uh, but it's still just basically text. So I thought that was really interesting. Anyway, Shanae highlights the versatility of the logo, which can be found in various forms throughout the series. Uh, he compares the logo to the iconic Playboy bunny, which I guess I don't read a lot of Playboys, so I didn't know this. I can, uh, <laughs> I can tell you why he relates it to that. Uh, because when I was reading this article, the first thing that popped in my head was, oh, this is like the Playboy bunny. And then I read down the article, and I was like, oh, he mentioned that what he's getting at with that is on the cover Playboy. I remember I learned this a long time ago. Uh, and when I learned this, it like totally blew my mind. Cause it's like such a clever thing to do with graphic design is they would hide the Playboy bunny on every cover. And it, I mean, sometimes it'd be blatant. It would just be like, you know, part of the picture, but sometimes it'd be like a ribbon would just be in the shape of the Playboy bunny bunny and be more subtle and that's what he was getting at in this article was that the way they, the way they hide this logo, uh, the logo reveal is very similar to what Playboy did. You know, they get really clever with where they put it. Like they, like you said, they put it on the barrel of a gun or something. And uh, that's kind. Of, I mean, that's essentially uh, the same idea of making like a, a clever usage of the logo in like a non-obvious way. And that's exactly what Playboy did with their bunny. That's awesome. I didn't know that until I read this article. And what's funny is in Shanae's article, he uses examples from Playboy. He has like a couple of Playboy covers. And on one of the covers, I I looked for a while. I couldn't find the Playboy bunny on the cover <laughs> of one of his examples that he uses. 
which back to his article about Atlanta, he actually mentions there's like four episodes, uh, two in season one, two in season two, that he still hadn't found the Atlanta logo. Oh, man. You know it's got to be in there. <laughs> exactly. It is. You know it, it is. is. And yeah. somebody in the comments like wrote back and was like, oh, in this episode, I did find it. It's like that. It's just the A on like a trucker's hat in an ad. So like, I don't know, just super cool little like built in Easter egg hunt that involves, uh, you know, this like this Atlanta logo and how simple it is, how distinct, how versatile. I mean, it really is a perfect representation of the series. Um, and I agree with Shanae. I mean, I'm not a graphic design artist, but the more that I like looked through these pictures and the more, I mean, the, I watched the show and uh, like the word itself and the style and the font, it is very iconic. It really reflects the iconic nature of the show. And it, it's weird to see things like that, like a word being shaped in a way that's almost comedic and dramatic. Like that's such an interesting yeah. like concept to think about. Do you have any other thoughts on this? Well, yeah. Uh, so when I was designing logos, I mean, that was always my favorite thing to design. And some of the keys of logo design is you want it to be simple and timeless and you want it to work in color or in black and white. And when you're designing a logo, you would typically design uh, a word mark and a logo mark if that's what's called for. And, you know, the word mark is like what you're saying, like Google or Atlanta. And then the logo mark could be some sort of icon. And then you can combine those two things to create, you know, I mean, essentially like, you know, it's just a combination. It could have the picture, the little, the little logo image as well as the words. And... uh when I was looking initially looking at this Atlanta logo, when I first looked at the article before I'd read it, I was like, it's cool. It looks cool, but it didn't seem particularly special to me. And then I started reading how this guy had analyzed it. And then I went back and looked at it and it's like, Oh yeah, that really makes a lot of sense because the, the a at the beginning and the end are very whimsical with their, their swooshes and their globule balls <laughs> on the end. And in the middle, it's just like kind of a standard uh, serif font. But I noticed in some of those uh, hidden instances of the logo from the show, the uh, the A's on the end would be the same, but in the middle, it would be like a sans serif font. And so uh, that coupled with sometimes the just the A being hidden on the trucker's hat or whatever – that made me realize like the real logo is just the a that's yeah that's essentially like the logo mark is the a and then the word mark is the entire word atlanta but mm -hmm. the only mm -hmm. thing that has to stay consistent for that logo is the a's on the end because they yeah. change the letters in the middle like on the barbershop poster that he referenced right that's a sans, a sans serif font in the middle and it's the same a the same logo mark on the end so that's like the part that's truly iconic is the A at the beginning at the end. And then the rest of it seems like it's variable. Totally. But then they do yeah. a lot of really awesome things with uh, hiding the logo. Like there was one in there that w it was like spilled champagne on a table that yep, yep. had been spilled out in the, you know, in the same shape as the logo, which that that is like super clever. And that's, I imagine that's, you know, not super easy effect to pull off because sure it looks photorealistic in the show and totally. uh, 
it seems like they do a lot of really cool things to the logo, and I had a lot more respect for the logo after reading the article than I did just glancing at it briefly before I knew, you know, what the context was. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a that's well said. I, I'm gonna um, obviously uh, share a link to this article in the show notes. All the pictures are there, so even if you're not a fan of Atlanta or you haven't seen it yet. Um, definitely check out this article. Check out the pictures if you're into this sort of thing. I, I just like find this sort of thing endlessly fascinating, super fun to think about, super fun to learn about because I don't know much about this stuff and this is something that you deal with on a pretty consistent basis. Um, but man, it just makes me appreciate, like I already thought Atlanta was a masterpiece and then just these little details. I just love content like that that has so much more going on for uh, content enthusiasts that are like looking for little details or looking to appreciate something more or find these like little hidden things about it. So just loved it. I just saw that Atlanta is streaming on Hulu. So I just put that on my list to binge watch, uh, off of your recommendation. So in the next few weeks, I'll probably have watched it all and then we'll be able to discuss it in depth. Nice. I like it. Well, speaking of uh, content circuits, what's on no. your content circuit? <laughs> um, I have been watching uh, the final season of Secession on HBO Max, which is uh, it's not something I really thought I would be interested in. It's about uh, the Roy family. They're uh, like a uh, they own a multinational media conglomerate, and it's basically like high stakes business drama but it's uh, it's also pretty funny and super messed up but it's uh it's Brian Cox who is just like pretty much anything i've ever seen him in i've i've loved it like i remember Brian Cox uh, specifically from adaptation have you ever seen adaptation with uh, Nicolas Cage i don't think so where he's uh-huh. trying to uh ad- adapt uh, like a an unfilmable book basically and Brian Cox he just has this small role in it of he's like a uh, a uh, screenwriting coach and he's like these super abrasive british guy like super insultive it's, it's hilarious but he kind of plays the same character he's a uh, he's logan roy he owns uh royco uh waystar royco it's the the media conglomerate and the show is about him wanting to uh step away from the business and trying to decide which one of his children will be taking over but they're all basically like either slackers or wannabes or has-beens they're all just like kind of not cut out for the high stakes nature of the business that he's trying to pass on and it's in its uh it's in its final season right now so it's all kind of wrapping up and uh it's it's a really great show i'd recommend that to pretty much anyone you know even if you're not into business which i clearly am not so uh that's uh I think it's like got three three episodes left until it's done. And um I know this probably won't surprise you, but uh I'm reading The Lost Fleet again for a fourth time, all oh seventeen God. books. Because there's a new one there's a new uh book coming out in July and I was thinking like, wow, I feel like I might be missing a few key details. I better read all uh, nineteen thousand pages of the of the series again. So I've been working my way through that again. I definitely feel 
like I've had similar experiences where I'm like, okay, well, this Marvel movie's coming out. Guess I'm gonna have to watch all the Marvel movies in order. Oh shucks. Or like, uh, I'll have to watch all eight Harry Potter movies uh, to go to Universal Studios or something. But um, the reading like over a dozen books for a fourth time is uh, that's that's a big commitment, Josh. It doesn't seem like work to me though, because I just uh, I love the story. It was that series was the the, the genesis of this show, like trying to sell people on reading that series over and over and over was where the idea for this show came from. So to me, anytime I, uh, anytime I start reading it again, it's kind of like, it reminds me of how much I love content and specifically that content, why that, that series is so important to me. And so I just kind of like look forward to every page of the entire series. It's just like so consumable I never feel like I'm bogged down or like, you know, there's never a slog when I'm reading that series. I just feel like it just moves so quickly. And then when I get to the end, I'm like, oh man, I wish there were 17 more books. This wasn't quite <laughs> enough for me. <laughs> well, we should, you, you should reach out to him and tell him that he's got to start cranking out some more content. So it sounds like he yeah, is. He's blowing it big time. Yeah. yeah, I just can't keep up with uh, your capacity for consumption. Exactly. Uh, and today I just listened to a new podcast. It's called Sanctum Unmasked. Uh, I just heard an ad for it, some other show I was listening to. And it's not usually what I would listen to. Um, I don't I don't usually like podcast series that are just about one subject. I like uh, I like each episode to be like, I don't know, like in true, true, true crime shows. I like it when they make a concise story, one episode, and they move on. Or, you know, maybe two or three episodes, but this is like the entire series is about this one story, which doesn't usually do it for me, but this one is like super fascinating. It's about this guy, uh, Damien, who uh, he creates a, the most successful and elite underground sex club that's ever existed. It's like, it starts off as a New York thing or as an LA thing, then it becomes a New York thing. And he has all these, uh, famous celebrities that join in and uh, that's I don't want to give away too much but it's apparently like it's a thing that happened in the last like 10 years and you know I don't I don't know how it ended yet because there's only four episodes out but uh, it's pretty crazy to hear how some other people live seems pretty insane <laughs> wait was this like the sex cult that had the blonde from Smallville, the actress that was like recruiting. No, it wasn't people. a cult. Okay. No, it was a. Uh, okay. He created this like eyes wide shut style sex club, like super exclusive, where it started off as like, you know, just kind of like a sexy kind of club experience, and then eventually turned into like there'd be porn stars there, and then there'd be like people banging on the couch and stuff. And it just became like he just became known as the guy that could like fulfill all of the, these Hollywood elites' sexual fantasies, and uh, apparently it came all crashing down in some way, which I haven't got to that part of the story yet. But it's uh, it's a pretty crazy story, and it's you know it's a podcast, so it's free. Sanctum Unmasked, you check that wow. out. I might have to. I wonder if that's where uh, Batman and 
overweight Spider-Man. So we got were, those gauntlets. <laughs> they were heading there after uh, their meet and greet in Times Square today. <laughs> oh, yikes. <laughs> well, Pretty gnarly. Sounds like a very well-balanced uh, content circuit you got. I like that. Totally. Yeah. It's got all the food groups. Yeah. A series I've read before. <laughs> uh, corporate espionage, espionage and lots of crazy sex. <laughs> Hitting all the high notes. Yeah, exactly. What about you? Uh, let's see. I've, uh, I, I feel like mine's been pretty diverse. Um, I saw Masego in concert. Um, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> he's, a mus- he's a multi-instrumentalist musician the uh oh, venue cool. the venue itself was like an epic piece of content uh the oasis in miami very cool um i'm reading a book right now it's called lessons in chemistry i've been listening to a few podcasts i got the huberman lab uh, which as an aside actually so derek p first recommended it to me um our good friend which by the way i I learned recently that Derek listens to two podcasts, the Huberman Lab and the Content Clearing House. So, oh, yeah, we got him. So I'm not saying that our show is better than the Huberman Lab, um, but, but I it's am, even. It's we're somewhat equal in value. In some yes, respect. thank you, Derek. <laughs> um, the other podcast I recently discovered, and I've been binging a lot on the road, is Wondery's "This Is Actually Happening." which is a collection of extraordinary true stories of life-changing events told by the people who lived them. So the one I listened to today on my walk through Central Park was the story of a guy that survived a grizzly bear attack in Canada. I had to Google a little bit about it while I was listening because I had to pause it for a while. I was like, this is too violent. It's too gruesome. And then I started listening, and then I decided to Google it, and I found a picture. He took, like, a picture of his face after the attack. I, it is some of the, like, most gory thing, like, content I've ever seen. Um, another episode was um, about a woman whose mother was a victim of MK Ultra experiments. So that was really Ooh, interesting. There was a guy that got his head crushed by 10,000 pounds of granite. His head <laughs> was three inches... <laughs> His head was three inches wide at one point. What? He survived. He was put back together. He now plays f- uh, football in his 40s. He's got like all these screws and pins and plates. I saw pictures of his x-ray, uh, x-rays on Instagram as well. So really wild stuff. It's kind of dark. There's like trigger warnings at uh, – you can look in the episode notes and there's like specific trigger warnings of like the, the types of gruesome content. Because none of this is like – Happy go. Trigger warnings are for bitches, Brett. <laughs> I mean, no, they're not. <laughs> no, they're. I, I staunchly disagree with that. There might be. All right. There might be. There is trauma that people have gone through where they will not find reliving people's similar traumas entertaining by any stretch of the imagination. So I definitely appreciate a show that is this heavy. And deals with the, this type of topics, like people should be warned. It is not super lighthearted, but it is. It's awesome content, and they do a great job. I mean, it's the people themselves telling the stories. A lot of people have written books about the events. Um, I've probably listened to like six or seven episodes, and I just discovered this show, um, so I'm super into that right now. Um, but besides that, uh, a little bit of TV content. Um, I you might be surprised to hear this. It's a reality show. 
Oh, here we go. Is it about love? Uh, well, there is a little bit of love happening. Uh, it's a series called Below Deck, which uh, I watch a lot of content. I consume a lot of content when I'm on the road. I have a lot of downtime in hotels and on airplanes. Um, so Below Deck is a reality show that follows um, boat charter staff. Like, so it's a, like the two seasons I've watched, it's a super yacht, like a really nice yacht that people will charter for like three or four days in like Tahiti or Thailand. And, you know, they're spending over a hundred K for like a three day vacation. They're tipping that the tips at the end of their like three day charter are like $20,000 cash. So this is like high, but the, the staff is like the deckhands and the stewards and the captain. And it's like their life behind the scenes as they like prepare meals and they like get all the water toys ready and they like bring the anchor up and, oh man, the drama dude. It like, it's, (laughs) it's a really good show because these people are trying to get a job done, but they're also just like the camera crew won't leave them alone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one guy had like a almost fatal accident in one series. Like he hit like a rope got caught around his foot. And so it's a little salacious, but it's also like, it's not just like a big brother or like a loves like bachelor. Like it's, it's like real people like trying to do like a real, like high end, like a high intensity, high pressure job. Um, But then there's also like drama with the guests. Oh, it's freaking great, man. I love it. I kind of um, like that type of reality show, though, uh, where it's like some crazy job and you're not really sure like what goes on behind the scenes. I think that's like probably the most uh, entertaining type of reality show. This is, this is one that I, I fully support and I stand behind, and it does feel a little less dirty than my usual reality TV consumption. You love love. I do love love. You love, love. to love it. <laughs> You can say that again. Well, that's that's um, that's all I got for the content circuit. Uh, so how about we take a quick break, and then when we get back, we'll get into some more content. Ooh, content. Clear it out. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Josh, you know I love love, but I also love content. So I can't Don't wait to all? hear. <laughs> well, we do. We're required to. It's part of our job. It is. We went to Harvard for it, contentology. <laughs> uh, so this actually, I wasn't planning on doing this, but uh, I found this piece of content and it inspired me to basically write an entire content piece in about two hours. And then I fleshed it out a little bit. But uh, this was just like such an interesting thing that I I wanted to share it with everybody. Uh, now, you know that I love zombies as much as you love love. <laughs> and uh, even though zombie content, uh, it's, you know, people say it's kind of played out, but I feel like be, thinking zombie content is played out is kind of the uh, the best movie ever made is the Godfather version of hating on pop culture. You know, it's like a thing that people say to sound smart about content, but is actually super boring and is not a hot take at all. Because zombie content is great, especially if it's done well. But rarely do I ever find something so unique and original as the awkwardly titled Zombie Virus EAS Scenario Dash The Awakening featuring Harvester, 
which is the content that I'm going to be covering today. And just for a little bit of context, uh, context, Harvester is the audio engineer that worked on this. So this what is a <laughs> it's a YouTube video from 2021 on a kind of obscure channel. Apparently, there's this whole subgenre of almost ASMR style videos that simulate emergency alert systems or EAS broadcasts. You know, like the emergency broadcast system, uh, those messages from when you were a kid. You remember those, like the. This is the best of the emergency broadcast system. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> well, actually, uh, recently there was a, an emergency alert pushed to every single person's cell phone in Florida. Or maybe it was just iPhone, but it was like the same tone as an Amber Alert. And it was at like 4.30 in the morning, woke everybody up. It was all over the news. It made national news. Somebody like really messed up this like emergency alert because it was just a test what um, was it for it, it they just wanted to test the system so it literally just like like pushed onto everybody's phones woke everybody up it might have even been like three o'clock in the morning it was like the worst possible time um but yeah it was just a test there it wasn't for anything it's like that uh one that got pushed to hawaii <laughs> for saying that nukes were inbound my god what a mess up that is <laughs> yeah, that, that was, was like that's like the worst example of this. Yeah. That was like a scenario that was like tearing families apart. Like the guy was like, one of my kids is on this side of the island and my other kids on the other side of the island. I got to choose which kid I love more. You know, it's like such a nightmare. Yeah, exactly. Well, hey, if you want to simulate that kind of terror, then this is the video for you. <laughs> I find like as if ASMR isn't already like one of the weirdest things ever. To find out that there's an emergency alert style ASMR thing is so bizarre to me. I love it. I love it so much. So it's not quite ASMR. <laughs> there is a video component of it, but it's kind of along those lines because emergency broadcasts are very, you know, they're kind of an audio medium. But uh, the page that creates these is called Electric Fanatic. And this is a YouTube uh, page that's been off and on since 2017. Uh, it was started in 2017 under the title Electric Sausage, which is a very shitty name, <laughs> and saw very little traction for two years. But then in uh, April 2019, the first EAS, the Emergency Alert System video, uh, titled Radioactive Zombies, was uploaded. And at the time, the channel only had about 10 subscribers. So this first video saw massive success compared to the other videos on the channel at the time. It gained hundreds of views within just a few days. Uh, by May 2019, the channel had over a thousand subscribers. And over the summer of 2019, Electric Fanatic uh, grew rapidly. With uh, there was a notable scenario that came out called "It the e the EAS Scenario," which looks like it's about Stephen King's It Monster. I haven't watched this one yet. Um, and this was the most popular. Uh, video on the channel for well over a year until it was overtaken by the one I'm talking about today. Uh, zombie virus EAS scenario dash the awakening featuring harvester. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just every time you read out the title, it's just so ridiculous. Yeah. I'm planning on reading in the full thing every time I reference the video too. Uh, so harvester is a UK based creator who's collaborated 
uh, quite a few times with Electric Fanatic creating these EAS scenarios. It seems like they've kind of created like a little niche genre out of these uh, EAS videos. And today the channel sits at roughly 28,000 subs, so it sounds like they're doing pretty good. Wow. Uh, so wow, the, interesting. These videos combine actual alarms with real videos of these warnings flashing on the screen with all the text modified to simulate the scenario the video is about, you know, things like nuke attacks or natural disasters, or in this case, a worldwide pandemic that starts slowly, then ramps up into a full-blown zombie apocalypse. And by zombie apocalypse, I mean very plausible viral outbreak that causes uncontrollable homicidal tendencies in its victims. So it's all very convincing and a disturbingly realistically uh, realistic look at how quickly the world can break down. And through this, I'd like us to take a bit of a retrospective meditation on the pandemic that we all live through and you know, the one that we're currently living through to, uh, to this day. I feel like a lot of people look at the pandemic and the lockdowns as that discussing that is kind of played out and boring at this point, but to me it was one of the craziest and most fascinating experiences in my entire life. You know, just the the concept of the world ceasing to spin for like three months and the bizarre steps we had to take to protect our families and the boredom that actually kind of fed my homebody tendencies during the lockdowns. Like, I'll always look back on that time with a combination of you know, fear and confusion and a little bit of wistfulness. Like, is it wrong to say that I kind of miss that experience while at the same time hoping it never happens again. Like the idea of everything grinding to a halt and just being like, you're just alone with your core group of people and finding entertainment and safety and happiness any way you can. Like that was foraging for content. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, what, how did you feel about when you look back on the lockdown, how do you feel about it? I mean, I did a lot of doom scrolling, which uh, I I I, <clears throat> I tend to think that social media platforms for me personally aren't that good for me, but I use them anyway. Um, so yeah, I probably would have done a little better if I spent less time on my phone. But the same could be said for my life right now. Um, I don't know. I I did have a like my circumstances ended up being like somewhat comfortable and I, you know, relative to what they could have been, but I know that it wasn't that way for a lot of people. So for, for that, I'm grateful. I feel like it was like relatively manageable, you know, like for example, a lot of people were moving into like campers to hit the great outdoors. Cause it was one of the only things that you could do. And I was already living in a travel trailer, which I had a, beautiful house to stay in over the winter, my dad's house. And then in the summer I worked a, uh, a job as a camp host at a state park. I think I was recording the podcast, um, during that time. So you remember that, um, uh, talking about it on the show. So like, I honestly had like a pretty good time, but I, I think that there also were just a lot of stressful things about it. And I kind of think that this is see, and this might be played out as a millennial talking about like various existential threats that I feel like we've like, like weird things that we've faced in this country. But, you know, I do feel like it's kind of par for the course. Like we saw the 2008 financial crisis. Like, I mean, I saw, 
you know, Columbine I was a little young for, but that was in my home state. There was 9-11, there was the 2008 financial crisis. And then so like COVID, it was kind of like, you know, oh, what else, what's next? Like the disclosure of alien life forms, like visiting, like it's just kind of like funny. There it me. is. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Like, I don't know. A little distraction for everyone. Yeah. Like it's like kind of distressing, but kind of comical a little bit. Maybe yeah. that's why I like shows like Atlanta. It's like a little bit of both. You like that, uh, that uh, dramatic and humorous logo of life. Exactly. <laughs> I do. And I love love. <laughs> yeah, you, do, you love to love it as well. All right. Well, let's circle back to this real world pandemic stuff a bit later. But for now, let's talk about zombie virus EAS scenario dash the awakening featuring Harvester. Yes, let's. So uh, we'll, we'll link uh, to this video in the show notes. Uh, but the entire story is told with extremely low budget methods. So text on screen, simulated newscast with stock footage of cities in the background, EAS broadcast, 911 calls and talking heads, recorded phone calls with CDC agents and the like. Uh, the writing in the scenario does all the heavy lifting and leans heavily on social discourse and a general distrust of all things official story that we all seem to develop during COVID. Mm. So this video is one year old. It's, it's pretty obscure and maybe not for everyone. This one is a little bit of a wild card, but it's something that I believe most people that listen to this show would enjoy just laying back and getting immersed in. Just let your mind wander with the scenario. Imagine how much worse our generation's pandemic could have been. And her, as horrific as it was, it seems strange that we eventually adopted it as the new normal. But there would be no new normal with the, this one presented in this video because there wouldn't be a normal anymore. This would reface the surface of the planet. So the scenario follows the entire life cycle of the K-17 PXVI or Plaxia virus, a distant cousin of the Ebola virus that is initially miscategorized by the CDC as a flu-like virus, which results in the prevention of spread response to be entirely wrong. So the CDC in this story initially believes that it's uh, the virus preys on the weak and vulnerable, when in fact it's highly contagious to anyone it comes in contact with. And beyond that, it's airborne, which is a total nightmare scenario. So this small failure by the CDC in the story allows the Plaxia virus to get a foothold from which it cannot be dislodged. And the symptoms initially manifest as flu-like, then evolve into the, effect, the infected to start losing awareness of their surroundings, with several of the initially infected people going missing. Eventually, it evolves uh, into creating these hi uh, hyper-violence and zombie-like symptoms, a la the crazies or 28 days later. So not dead people, but uh, essentially like in, in uh, 28 days later, you know, they have the rage. Yeah. Uh, for all intents and purposes, they're zombies. They just happen to be alive. And that's kind of what this uh, what this leans into. Gotcha. And uh, if if you are easily triggered, and by that I mean if you are a bitch, like I mentioned <laughs> earlier, uh, you should know that this video features loud and very real uh, emergency alert system warning tones. Uh, you know, it's basically all throughout this video you get those emergency alert sim signals. And the video even warns you not to play it openly in public because these tones can cause panic. And I'm not sure about all that because I think we as a society are pretty callous about annoying things that are supposedly, uh, you know, they're supposed to warn us of danger. Like we'd rather be not annoyed than informed. Like as an example, I used to live in uh, Commerce City here in Colorado, kind of out by the airport, and we had tornado sirens 
that would go off every single week to test the system. And it was so annoying. And eventually everyone just sort of tuned them out. You know, mm. but then you have the Hawaii scenario we talked about earlier where everyone got a text message saying that nukes were coming and yeah. that caused mass panic. <laughs> like have oh, you ever God. have you ever experienced any either of these scenarios, like either being annoyed by constant alerts or terrified by one? Hmm. That is, I mean, well, I talked about the thing in Florida that was extremely annoying. Um, oh, were you it, there when that happened? Oh yeah, yeah. I was in Florida. Oh man. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. I just kind of thought the like Twitter outrage was hilarious because people had a lot of like funny takes on it. Um, I mean, I you know um, visual and oral alerts and warnings. Uh, well, specifically cautions and warnings is like the correct Boeing terminology, but that's a very important part of aviation. Um, So that's kind of becomes like a part of my everyday life, but it is kind of funny how there were like certain airplanes that I flew that had like, you know, there were times where you would be like canceling like certain warnings or alerts that you were predicting to happen during certain stages of like engine start and things like that. So you'd build these like really strong associations um, like the landing gear warning horn uh, you know, like pulling the power back beyond a certain setting with the landing gear not extended would give you this really annoying tone um, to alert you that the landing gear is not down. Like stuff like that was like really annoying. So you would like automatically like push the button or be ready to push the button. You would build such a Pavlovian like reef or not a Pavlovian, but you just build like such a reflex to things like that. Um, but yeah, I could see how, you know, at some point, like if you hear a tornado siren, oh, you know what a good one is, is in hotels, like I, you know, I live in so many hotels, basically half my life is in hotels as a pilot and fire alarms go off occasionally and they're never fires. (laughs) They are, man, they are only, they're only things to like agitate and irritate me. And there's flashing lights in the rooms. They're super freaking loud. It's it, it's it's pretty horrible. But again, I, I'd rather be annoyed than die in a fire. But it's never a fire. That's the thing. <laughs> I've never been in a fire in a hotel, and I've been woken up by so many fire alarms. Ugh. So it seems like having regular tests of these things just has the opposite effect of what you'd hope. They kind of inoculate you against caring about being warned. seems like an extremely flawed system. God, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> I, never, I never thought about that but whenever a fire alarm goes off i'm i'm never like if i like got any other s- indication like if i smelled smoke that's a different story i'd get the hell out but like no i slip on my like you know i like might go to the bathroom i find my earplugs put my earplugs in i might slip on my uh my flip-flops and maybe casually like Stroll down to the front desk to like see. You peek out into the hallway. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I don't see any panic going on. I guess I'll just yeah. stay here. Yeah, yeah exactly. I've never yeah. like, oh my god, I need to evacuate. Never, not a single time. Testing systems, like I understand why they need to be tested, but man, like I really think that, especially as Americans, we just rather not be annoyed. And <laughs> like you're talking about with the air, the airline systems, just like. You just tune it out after a while, which is crazy, but that's totally what happens with systems like this. Uh, but uh, getting back to zombie virus EAS scenario dash the awakening featuring Harvester, uh, this whole thing <laughs> takes place in Seattle, and the government responds with a military force 
So blockades, uh, deadly forces off authorized, and eventually it just gets so, so much worse. But this kind of reminded me of, uh, do you remember when a region of New York was blockaded during COVID? Like I remember seeing footage on the news of APCs blockading roads around one small suburb. Like that footage seemed apocalyptic to me. And it's amazing the way our pandemic went, like the adaption of all of it and uh, how we all went back to normal eventually and just kind of accepted all these crazy things that were happening around us. Like that footage really made me feel like a scenario like this, like a true apocalypse is happening when you start seeing like APCs in the streets. Like, do you, do you remember seeing that footage from New York? It was like in the early days of the pandemic. I don't specifically know. It was the only time I saw anything like that, but it was like, that was a moment for me where I really started like, it really made me feel like something massive is happening because yeah. you rarely see things like that, like on American streets. Yeah. That's and, pretty wild. you know, it didn't, it didn't really happen much after that, but I really felt like we were on a precipice at that point. What the hell were they going to do with a bunch of tanks? Man, Shoot people that like, were like walking outside. I don't understand. Exactly. Yeah. A it show was, of force. Yeah. just like the, the, the whole response seemed, uh, really like there was no one in charge and there were like disparate responses across the country. That just seemed to me in the early days, like one of the most extreme ones. Uh, it's wild, but this piece touches on how quickly society can break down as well as the effect of social media on this type of, uh, this type of, uh, worldwide event. So like things like the protests and riots and shootings and purge like activity that happened in our own streets kind of culminating in January 6th. I feel like we were experiencing what we experienced was just a small scratch on the surface of that type of breakdown. And I know watching it all happen filtered through biased media outlets was a truly surreal experience for me. Um, I got so many insane screenshots of the riots and, uh, you know, the assault on the Capitol and things like that. Uh, it, it all just stopped short of complete societal collapse. But how did that type of thing affect you during COVID? Like seeing the riots in the streets and seeing like the shootings that were happening and when there were images of like piles of bricks that had been left near protests that seemed like they were there in an attempt to, you know, make these protests break out into more than just like a peaceful demonstration, like into full-blown riots it was strange for me seeing yeah, that stuff scary, from man. from a distance. But did yeah. you did you have any close contact with anything like that? I mean, like I said, I didn't have any close contact. I mean, I I think the pandemic, although everybody was kind of living like some very similar things in some ways, like it kind of like connected the whole world in a weird way. People also had very very different experiences. I mean, you could be in two different neighborhoods and be like living a completely different um, experience based on like what your job was. Like if you wanted to work from home now, like, like you said, like you had a great time. (laughs) Like some people were like, I wish that we went back to that, you know? And then others um, were worried about how they'd make ends meet or they were locked down in like a tiny apartment with like, you know, really, really serious, um, I mean, you know, I talk about flying into Hong Kong 
and thank goodness things have lifted, but not that long ago, just to get in the country was a very dystopian experience of people in hazmat suits, you know, sending you every which way to get tested, and then you were locked down in your hotel room until you got a QR code of your test result that you'd scan going into restaurants, masks that were required, you know, and, and that was recently. So depending on like the country you were in and the, you know, your economic status, I mean, people had really uh, wildly different experiences, but no, I mean, I, I definitely felt the, uh, you know, I definitely felt a lot of stress. I feel like, and I do like, I still do like, this is why I completely disagree with you about trigger warnings. I'm an advocate because we are <laughs> all dealing with a lot of things and maybe somebody just doesn't want the anxiety inducing alarm when they're trying to like relax and binge some YouTube videos. Like, I don't know. <laughs> and like other people want to be stressed. Like that's why we have horror movies. That's why we have ASMR. ASMR is very stressful or so I've heard. <laughs> All the chewing. <laughs> yeah. All the crinkling paper and whispering. I can't handle it. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so, if a true zombie vir virus outbreak was happening, it would never be reported as such. In fact, I think it would be downplayed in a way that would make it sound like something that we're already familiar with, like killings or attacks or crazed people, but not zombies. How long do you think it would take for people to just adopt the zombie vernacular? Or do you think it would be like in The Walking Dead where the world just acts like it never even heard the word zombie? I think we'd use the zombie nomenclature. I think zombies sure. are s such a part of our pop cultural lexicon that pff, if you're like me, you're just looking for an excuse to use that. I'm, I'm ready to call anything zombies at this point. <laughs> I'm kind of upset it hasn't happened. Uh, I know but you if are. Zombies, <laughs> if zombies were happening, or even something like in this video, how long do you think it would take before we start bombing our own cities or creating like roving death squads of soldiers to eliminate anyone in the open or to slow down something that spreads at a geometric rate, as the Terminator would say. Like in The Last of Us, you know, it starts pretty immediately. In that show, uh, a fungal expert, a, a fungologist or whatever, uh, <sighs> suggests immediately they start bombing their cities. And in both the game and uh, the show, bombed out sh cities are shown with no clear time frame of when it happens. But I've, I've always assumed that it happened pretty quickly. But what about in our world? Do you think that that would be a step that our governments would take pretty quickly? There was no yes. way to stop this kind of thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of my favorite pieces of zombie content has been and always will be World War Z by Max Brooks, the book. Very specifically the book, not the movie. But um, I, I just something I love about that book, it feels so grounded and realistic as to how each country would deal with the uh, zombie threat. And I love that, like, the American, the U.S. one was, like, this big, like, display of force to make everybody feel safe. But it's, like, not well thought out at all. It's, like, using all these weapons that are totally ineffective against the zombies. And I just, I really loved that take. Like, I really loved that perspective of, like, different countries, like, having different strategies. And it felt very accurate. That's kind of what I felt like the uh, APCs in the streets of New York was. It was like a show of force that didn't really correlate to what was happening at all. And so it weird. is weird to think about like how close we were to like some truly crazy shit going down. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
So one thing they never really touch on in this video, uh, other than a very cursory manner, is uh, wearing masks, mainly because the Praxia virus moves too quickly for any kind of response to be mounted like that. But what did you feel about the masks being a governmentally mandated requirement during our <laughs> pandemic? Why Why is this turning into an interview about... Because my... I'm interested in your thoughts on these things. I mean, I I felt like it was better to be conservative with wearing masks. And I felt like the, you know, the sources that I was reading said that it was a good idea to prevent the spread. Um, and, you know, I just like tried to follow the guidelines realistically as we learned more information. But yeah, I, I thought it was ridiculous to like make such a stink about wearing a mask. Like it's the end of the freaking world to put a piece of cloth over your face. I thought that was stupid and I was happy to wear a mask. And then when we realized that like, Hey, like enough people are vaccinated, like we're pretty safe going out and about, you know, stay inside. If you got COVID, I was happy to take the mask off. I don't like wearing a mask. Who does? You know, but like, do I also respect the Japanese that like they've been wearing masks for a long time when somebody is sick, they put on a mask to prevent other people's from getting sick, like other people on the train or at work. Like, yeah, that's cool. I like that. So follow your heart. (laughs) (laughs) You love love. Yeah. I've uh, in the beginning. Yeah. Like I was I was all for it. And I actually I do think it was a good idea for, you know, quite a while. I remember here in my neighborhood in Colorado when the mask mandate uh, initially went into effect, I was walking uh, the dog and I was wearing a mask and I was getting like some really weird looks from people in the neighborhood. And I think I mentioned this on the show way back in the day, but I was thinking like, you know, I'm doing the thing that apparently we're supposed to be doing. And then I'm getting weird looks from people for doing that. And so there was always like this, this very strange like back and forth about masks between everyone I knew and then in my own mind. But I will admit that I did see like a a value in the mask while we were doing it because we got almost no sicknesses in our house for a long time. Like even after the lockdowns ended uh, because wearing masks, I mean, it just kind of like, prevented all the little spittle that you would come in contact every day and like the contact with weird dirty surfaces was cut down because people were wearing masks but the the strange thing i thought about it was eventually how it became almost like a i mean it was like a, a total uh like a uh a broadcast of your your social awareness you know like wearing masks i listened to a few podcasts of uh, these guys in LA and they still talk about how there are places in LA where you have to wear your masks. And now I think it's almost like gone into the brainwashing realm with these podcast hosts because they still talk about to these days on current podcasts about, Oh, do, do your social responsibility, uh, wear your mask when you go out in public. And I'm just thinking like, I can't remember the last time I saw someone wearing one. So it has become, almost just like it's been completely overtaken by people that are broadcasting how aware they are and how much 
you know, how much care they have for their fellow man, even when at this point it doesn't have any kind of logical basis in reality anymore. And I think that most things like this eventually get latched onto by some kind of movement. It's interesting to see that progression with masks. Yeah, for sure. And I, whether this is right or wrong, like I will admit to being somebody that, especially when I'm traveling to other countries, I just try to adopt what the majority is doing. Like, again, I don't know if that's, I don't know what that says about me. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I just think it's best to try to fit into whatever culture you're at. So in Japan, like long beyond, like I don't think it's required any, or like it hasn't been required for a while, but you know, the streets are pretty busy. People are like walking pretty close to you and most people are wearing masks. So I put on a mask and I don't need to. But I do because I like Japan. I want to be respectful of their culture. Um, I go to Hong Kong now. Almost like everybody is maskless. And so I don't wear a mask. And I, f- I feel safe. I feel comfortable. Um, and it can be pretty busy. So I don't know. I just try to fit in a little bit. But again, you know, it, am I a sheeple? Sure. I don't care. I love love. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's probably important. You go into someone else's culture to try right. to fit in. Yeah. I think so. I don't think that's, I don't think that's strange at all. That's my strategy. Uh, yeah. What was crazy, though, was during the uh, the beginning of the lockdowns when the CDC was initially declaring masks to be ineffective in an attempt to save them for the uh, for uh, healthcare workers. That was that that was kind of like the beginning of me starting to not trust the narrative that was being fed to us. Yeah, that's a they. That's a pretty bad disservice that you do to yourself to lie to that's a population really to try to achieve some goal. Uh, that's like the epitome of not communicating like openly, transparently, clearly, honestly. And yeah, I I agree. I have like a complete distrust of uh, most bureaucrats, politicians, institutions. That's not a good thing. <laughs> they really yeah, that was they really screwed themselves such a bad on that move. One. They really did. Uh, so we talked about the lockdowns a little bit, uh, and you said you talked a little bit about how they were for you. Uh, I wanted just to talk about a little bit of my lockdown experience. So probably the one thing I spent the most time doing uh, was going out in the backyard and throwing a stick up in the air as high as I could and then seeing if I could catch it as it came down. And I got really good at that. There was a, I had a lot of free time to throw a stick in the air. And I was so sad when my throwing stick eventually broke. It, <laughs> did, you name, did you name this game? Because I know you like to name your games that you come up with. Yeah, stick throw. <laughs> But every time, every time I go upstairs, I still call it Upsy Stairsy. <laughs> upsy Stairsy. Oh yeah. Upsy so, I think that I, I think that we got really lucky in my area. Um, we're in a neighborhood, but it's not like super built up here. There's a lot of open space that we could just go and walk, and nobody cared. And uh, you know, our my family, we all stayed safe and healthy, and. Uh, I played a lot of video games and consumed a lot of content during the lockdown. So I do know that my experience during the lockdown was 
different than someone that would have been you know trapped in like a high rise apartment how much more nightmarish that would have been so i'm always thankful that that experience that i had was the way it was and relatively low stress to some of the things i saw across the world and that's i know it seems wrong to say it but that's why i kind of look back on it with a little bit of wistfulness because i love doing awesome things but also i love being at home and relaxing and chilling and watching a movie on my phone or something. Like I watched right in the beginning of the pandemic, I watched Contagion. And uh, I, did, Me too. I did this. <laughs> it's because I'm a child and my primary method of interfacing with reality is through pop culture. And apparently I wasn't the only one. You did it too. Yeah. But I looked up some stats here and uh, before January 24th of uh, 2020, Contagion was being torrented about 200 times a day globally. And on January 25th, it jumped to over 1,500. And once the once the coronavirus had truly arrived in the U.S., there were over 18,000 downloads each day. And that just kind of reiterates how we all look to pop culture for some kind of touchstone to crazy things like this happen. There, I mean, there's a theory that UFOs and, and aliens and entertainment is a strategy by the government to slowly introduce the the culture and society to the idea that aliens exist and they're visiting and they've made contact um, because that's what's happening and they want to, you know what I mean? So I don't know. That's uh, you're right. I'd be the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Entertainment definitely plants ideas in our minds for sure. Yeah. So uh, let's get back to, Zombie virus EAS scenario dash the awakening featuring Harvester. So it gives you a look at what the outbreak would be like locally. Like I remember watching footage of, you know, supposed ground zero in China, hearing reports that coronavirus could potentially go global and become a pandemic. It was very surreal watching it, you know, creep across the, the oceanic divide. And, uh, it was just like, in the beginning, it seemed like, oh, this is this is a problem for somewhere somewhere else. You know, I, I kind of hearkened back to when there was the Ebola scare, and you know, the first time Ebola popped up in America, and there was this massive response and it was contained immediately. And I just kind of thought, like, oh yeah, this is extremely unfortunate, but I just imagine that's what would happen if COVID got here. Uh, but in this video. I mean, this is literally happening in everyone's back backyard, unless you're in Seattle, in which case it's happening in your front yard, inside your house at the same time. But you get to see the local spin as well as the eventual spillover into neighboring countries and how that affects uh, individual states. And the response that takes place is so horrendous. The globe even starts calling the Praxia virus the American virus, kind of like how COVID was closely tied to Wuhan. Mm. And... Um, it's just it's a it's a really interesting perspective because it kind of takes this video kind of takes that idea of the pandemic happening somewhere else and like plops it right down in our in our front yard here in America. Interesting. So it's a uh, there's so many there's so many correlations in this video. It's just all super compressed. But with our particular pandemic, like what did you feel like the most dangerous part was? Me, I personally felt like the most dangerous part of all of it was. Uh, the precedence that it's set, you know, things like anti-vaxxers that, that idea of it not just being for crazy people anymore. Now it applies to people that just don't trust the story of what's going on. 
Plus, you know, like the narrative, like disinformation and fake news, that old concept, it really seems like it took off during our pandemic. And learning how untrustworthy the news really is on both sides of the narrative and how it seems like both sides are controlled by the same group of people and they're just feeding us people that consume that kind of content, you know, like just slightly different versions of that story. That's what I, I felt like was the most dangerous thing of our pandemic other than of course the fact that this virus was lethal for a percentage of the population yeah it definitely feels that way that um the the division and the divide oh god it, it does seem untenable for sure and unsustainable and it seems like it got way worse during help. our pandemic i agree yeah i agree like 100%. such a divide in the in the country yeah, and just like the proliferation of misinformation, and yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, it's it definitely was a watershed moment for sure. Yep, I can tell you that consuming too much content was not a danger. The coronavirus. Oh, that was the best. That was the best part. <laughs> that was the best part. Yeah. And throwing a stick up in the air. <laughs> oh, you mean all right? Uh, well, throw stick throw. Stick throw. Yeah, throw stick. stick. Throw, yeah. stick St- sticky throw. Uh, all right. Well, let's wrap this thing up. Uh, zombie virus EAS scenario dash the awakening featuring harvester. In case anyone forgot what the title of the, of the video was, it's a truly horrifying film told in a completely unique and chilling fashion that really opens my eyes up to how much worse our pandemic could have been. And granted this film compresses the first year of what we experience into a week and then leaps past the merely inconvenient into truly apocalyptic. But I don't feel like anything these guys propose on the response side in this video is out of the question if something like something this virulent were actually running rampant. Like our society is so tenuous. And I don't want to be a doomsday guy, but sometimes when I'm sitting at home playing video games late at night, I think about how truly great we actually have it. And I kind of feel sad that I know it just can't last like it's all so fragile it just feels solid because we're so used to it and i want to believe that it is permanent because it's so great and we're so fortunate but since seeing the way our society reacted to covid i feel like it's all just balancing on a knife edge and that's why this is such an effective like i it's not really a horror movie but horror audio drama with minor and convincing visual elements like this video made me think about this stuff almost nonstop, which is at least 30% more than I typically ruminate on apocalyptic scenarios. So zombie virus EAS scenario dash the awakening featuring harvester ends with the death of hope for the world. And it made me thankful for what we experienced. And despite the absolute butchering of humanity's response, we still came out on you know, if not the other side of our pandemic, at least on this side of it, at least there was another side. Our lives did return to a semblance of normality. And for that, I will always be thankful. Like, I love my life and all the things in it. Like, I love having a family that can be relatively pampered in the grand scheme of humanity's existence. And I love coaching in the wind tunnel and being able to record podcasts with my best friend. There's so many generous gifts that are so easily taken for granted. Like, we live in such an amazing time. And I hope it lasts forever, even though I fear it cannot, Brett. Like this video 
is an existential dread simulator that's so easy to buy into because of what we've all lived through, which makes makes it an extremely effective horror film. Like seriously, take 55 minutes from your schedule, put on some headphones, and imagine you are a future generation archaeologist that has discovered a compiled record of the end of the world while you experience this video, which in case you forgot, it's called Zombie Virus EAS Scenario Dash the Awakening Featuring Harvester. <laughs> <laughs> well, Josh, <clears throat> you've done it again, buddy. I have been triggered, but only in the best possible oh. ways. <laughs> well, I just learned something about you. I mean, I love that you have such an attitude of gratitude, and yet I know you well enough to know that you secretly want a zombie apocalypse. So, although you'll be a little sad, you'll also be a I little think happy does. too. Everybody does. Everybody wants that. <laughs> you you do think that, don't you? But I'm not so sure. Uh, well, man, I cannot wait to check out zombie virus EAS scenario dash the featuring harvester. You still don't have it down? I've only said it 15 times. There's a lot of words in there. I can't wait to watch that video that you told us all about. Um, I love hearing about a unique piece of content, something a little more obscure that's really interesting. And I also agree with you when things, when people say that things are played out, that's, that just means that content creators have the opportunity to overcome a challenge because that genre has been saturated. And so it makes good content in that particular genre even better because they have to really rise to the occasion. So I'm super into that. Super into this obscure, weird, not ASMR, but ASMR adjacent content. So I can't wait to uh, wrap this up and check it out. So thanks, Josh. Thanks all the listeners for tuning into the podcast. We're on about a once a month schedule right now, um, but we're really happy to be doing the show again and hanging out with each other and with all of you. Uh, We have an Instagram content clearinghouse or is it? I think it's the Content Clearinghouse. But we have an email, contentclearinghouse at gmail.com. <laughs> I need to post on uh, the Instagram. It's been a while. <laughs> Forgot what while. it's called. Yeah, I did. Uh, but thanks for tuning in the show, and we'll see you next time.